The band had just recently signed their first record contract. They were finally going to get paid to make music, to record, to tour. But the guitar player wasn't so sure if he could reconcile his faith with the work of making music. Now, the music they were making was not in any way detrimental to the faith. In fact, they talked about the deep themes of life, but they had been given this vision that there were two sides, two poles of the world. There was that which was holy and sacred and that which was worldly. And at the moment when it seemed like the band was about to take off, the guitar player quit, and with it, it seemed like the band itself was dead. The woman who had her entire life had a sense of God's presence, that he was near, felt while praying on a train at the age of 27 that heaven had turned the lights out. Like all that she had previously experienced was gone. The next several years of her life, she would describe her attempts at a life with God as dry, empty, lonely, torturous, devoid of all feeling, dark, We'll return to them in just a moment. Let's talk about you. Perhaps you grew up in a church setting that had all of the answers. Everything fit into nice boxes. Everything had the texture of A plus B equals C. The world was neatly divided into the good people and the bad people. God was uniquely and and rightfully made out to be very simple. And there came a moment One day, when the equation stopped working, the answers to the questions didn't satisfy, or worse yet, the questions you were asking were deemed dangerous, like the first step on a slippery slope towards losing your faith, or perhaps the answer at the end of the equation painted the picture of a small and ugly God. Or maybe for you, church has always felt like an exercise in cognitive dissonance. Everybody else seems to be experiencing something that you are just not on the inside of. Like, especially like a moment like we just had with like such beautiful, heartfelt, like really excellent worship. And you may be sitting there like, I don't know. Everybody else is feeling it. I'm not. Perhaps the the content of the sermons doesn't address those deep questions that you have, or maybe even because of your expertise, You're kind of constantly feeling this tension. Faith for you feels like at some point you're going to have to check your brain at the door and you just don't feel willing to do that. Perhaps you've never really struggled with faith in Jesus. You love Jesus. You want to follow him more. But after seeing the way that so many people who claim faith in Jesus act callously in the world of politics, who ignore the cries of people of color, who talk about their own experiences with systemic racism, they neglect the environment, the poor, the marginalized, the refugee. You're just not sure what the point of faith is. If people of faith act the same way, act just as tribalistic and often sometimes more cruel and harsher than people who claim no faith, then... What's the point of all of it? Maybe you've suffered the loss of a loved one, divorce, abuse, and you just can't figure out how God could allow something like this to happen to you or to someone you love. Revisiting our conflicted guitar player who quit the band, his name is David Evans, better known by his stage name, The Edge. And he is the lead guitarist for the band U2. 
You two, three of the members were part of a fundamentalist Christian group in Ireland that had a very narrow perspective on what could be done for God. And so they wanted to serve God. And so that's why he was racked with doubt. He's like, I don't know what to do. And at this moment where it seemed like everything was taking off, he quit the band. Now, thankfully, at least I'll speak for myself here because I love you too. They found a way to reconcile this sense of faith in God and serving through music. And they'd go on to become the biggest band in the world. But not only that, you too would be at the forefront of lobbying leaders to confront the AIDS crisis in Africa. They would be at the forefront of raising awareness about the war in Sarajevo, about famine in Ethiopia, to demand that European nations that colonized and pillaged African nations would pay reparations, would cancel the debts that many of these European nations were still holding over these African nations. And as if that was not enough, his signature sound is basically created a whole genre that we call the modern Christian worship movement. So many of the songs that we sing on a Sunday are influenced. You two are basically the grandfathers of a lot of the songs that we sing each Sunday. And so I personally am grateful. The woman praying on the train was named Mary Teresa Boyaju, better known as Mother Teresa. Her compassion and mercy would become world famous as she served the supposed untouchable lepers in Calcutta. She would found an order of nuns that would serve all around the world, win the Nobel Peace Prize in 1979, and be canonized by the Catholic Church as a saint following her death. Throughout her life, she embodied God's mercy, yet frequently experienced a perceived absence. For the edge, doubt was introduced by a false choice, and we so often do this to people in church. We set two things at opposite poles and say that it's either this or it's this. We set these false binaries, and yet Jesus is there on the cross holding these things together. And whether for you it's vocation and following Jesus or faith and science, whatever false binary has been put in front of you so often, the doubts that are in, then introduced don't serve to actually tell the story that God is trying to tell. For others of you, there's a much more complex sense of doubt like Mother Teresa, the sense of like, I, I mean, how could this woman who so tangibly and so powerfully served God how could it be her life experience that she didn't just walk around in glory? I, I don't understand that. That she didn't feel God's presence in such a way that she could serve out of this deep well. Oftentimes doubt is complex. It is mysterious. There are so many reasons that we begin to doubt God. Not all of them are the same. And this is really important, friends. Not all doubts are the same. Thus, not all doubts require the same response. There are intellectual doubts, experiential doubts, philosophical doubts, ecclesiastical doubts. You see the stuff the church has done, both in history and in the present. And you're like, I'm not so sure that we're getting the Jesus stuff right. There are ways that we doubt God can be really as good and as loving as people seem to say that he is. We doubt that we will be taken care of by God, that he holds us in his hands. And for those of you today who bring your doubts in as you walked in the door, welcome. This is a deeply personal topic for me, um, both because of the doubts that I experience, which tend to be on the sort of philosophical end, uh, tend to be about suffering. Both of those kind of in the abstract, the suffering you see at a wide angle that happens in the world and the suffering I experience in my own life and with my closest friends, family. What is God doing in the midst of that? And I've found in my life that doubt has often been a doorway 
an invitation, not necessarily to come at some settled answer that will forever serve me as like, oh, when this crops up, I can just say this. But to find Jesus at the depths of those questions, to find Jesus at the depths of those places of uncertainty. And so for me, doubt is a constant companion in my life with Jesus. And if that's you, I think we can follow Jesus together. But the other thing I think we see in in this sense of doubt is that deconstruction, this kind of idea that we're sort of burning everything down that was, has become common parlance, at least, you know, looks like millennial Gen Z kind of folks. People are looking at the faith that they received and saying, well, there was, there was so much missing there. There was so much wrong there. And oftentimes there is genuine stuff that needs to be addressed. Genuine stuff that needs to be unpacked. And so whether you're coming from a faith that's sort of kind of weathered and bearing the scars of kind of walking through the doubts, or you're like, I'm just beginning to kind of feel this creeping sense that, I don't know, everything I've been told that there's more. Both are welcome here as we talk about doubt. We've been in this series on faith, and really the undersize of faith is, is doubt, right? What does it mean? to live confidently for Jesus, to live confidently that he got up out of the grave and all of that entails. And yet to experience this sense that maybe, I don't know what this means. What, what are the implications for my life right here and right now? What about the questions that I have? Now, I wanna put up some, what we'll call maxims, some proverbs about faith and doubt. And I'll give you the reasoning for this because I want to say a lot about this topic and I'm not going to be able to say everything. So this is my way of shortcutting that just a little bit. So just some things to kind of serve as underpinnings, as a structure with which we are approaching our story for today. First, faith does not equal certainty. In the corollary, doubt is not the opposite of faith. Certainty is the opposite of faith. The moment you are certain... You don't have a need for faith, right? Second, I already have let you in a little bit on the process. Doubt is a doorway. Doubt, those questions that gnaw at you, whether they're theological, whether they're about what it means to live in the world as a follower of Jesus, those are invitations that God is saying, come on, there's more here. There's a deeper well to draw from. Doubt is a doorway. Doesn't have to be the end of the story. Deconstruction, not in the Foucault kind of way, but in the way that it's commonly used, is a part of spiritual formation. Like Jesus' intention is not that he would give us all the information, all of the callings to obedience all at once. Jesus says, I will be with you to the end of the age. It was always intended that we would mature and grow in faith, that we would walk at the pace that God has set for us and that we would grow. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. He says, when I was a child, I reasoned like a child, but now that I am older, I no longer reason that way. And for many of us, yes, you have received distorted pictures or less than clear pictures of what Jesus looks like. And so often God is just saying, hey, there's more here. Like, yes, you can unpack some of that stuff. For for those of you who are in seminary in our midst today, A big part of your experience is sort of unpacking, maybe unlearning some stuff, but not just unlearning so you take a blowtorch to everything and and are left with nothing. No, there's stuff that can pass through that furnace and stand. And that's true for all of us. We all have this calling 
to walk and to grow and to be transformed from glory to glory throughout our lives. Next, Jesus praises faith, not doubt. Now, early on in the life of our church, one of our stated values was about doubt. It was sort of like doubters welcome, you know, we, we welcome all doubts, that kind of thing. And I was really trying to honor the questions. If you've been around here for a little while, you probably see that we, we do love the questions. But what I found as I read the scriptures is that Jesus is never like, hey, I'm praising you for your great doubt. There was always this sense of like, wow, like Jesus is, is sort of marvels at faith. And so doubt is a doorway and doubt is not the opposite of faith, but faith is the thing we're after. Faith is the thing that we are pursuing. It's sort of the end that we have in mind. And so we sort of shifted that language a little bit. Lastly, mystery cultivates love. Perhaps you have a long-standing relationship, a spouse, a child, a friend. What you find is that you, you could know everything about that person. You could know everything about their life, everything that's ever happened to them. You could have been a part of a lot of it and you've shared those experiences together. But as you know more and more, even as you share more and more life together, what you find is that there is this abyss between you and that person. That person remains a mystery to you, right? The more that you know them, the more that you see how complex, how infinitely surprising they are, how how distant and different from you they are. And that's so good. And this happens with God. He's drawing us closer to himself, but it's as we are drawn closer, we see the less that we know. Ronald Rollheiser talks about it. It's like you're in this situation where you are just in the presence of of uninhibited light. And the more the light, the, the intensity of the light is turned up, you're surrounded, wrapped by light. You actually can't see anything because the light is so bright. And yet you are completely immersed in the light, even though you can see less. And so for us, mystery cultivates love. This sense that I know I'm confident of this, and yet there's so much that I cannot know. And so these are some underpinnings today as we look at a story of how Jesus responds to our doubts. And we see how gracious our God is as he meets us in our doubts. We'll turn to Luke 24, beginning in verse 13. It says, Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing, notice what happens. Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Our story today takes place on the first Resurrection Sunday. Two disciples, one of which we will soon discover is named Cleopas, are walking away from Jerusalem, and they are talking about all the events of the Passover week that preceded it that have culminated, at least in their minds, in the crucifixion of Jesus at the hands of the Romans at the insistence of the religious leaders. Luke tells us, as these two disciples are walking along the road, that the resurrected Jesus comes near and walks with them. Now, you have to understand that these two disciples on this road from Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified to Emmaus, these two disciples are walking a walk of absolute despair and disillusionment, disappointment, because of the story that they have been telling themselves. You see, these two disciples, like Jesus himself, were Jewish men. And the story that they were telling themselves was that there was the promise of a king that would come, a king that would, would instill a new order, 
and that that king would overthrow their pagan oppressors and would set Israel up in its rightful place as the center of all of humanity. But as they are talking about on the road, these two disciples have seen their hopes and dreams dashed in a moment as Jesus of Nazareth, this one that they thought, as we'll see, could have been this king, this one that they had spent time around and seen the amazing things that he said and did, seen the way that he lived in the world. They thought, could it be? Could this be the one who is finally going to begin this new chapter in our story? They had seen him crucified by the Romans. Not only were their hopes for a new age dashed, but their friends, their friend was gone. I think we miss this sometimes. You know, people's relationships with Jesus just weren't transactional. Like, I mean, just picture the most loving person that you know, the person who loves you the best. Like Jesus was that, for especially the people that were in his closest circle. Like Jesus was funny, he was kind, he was curious. So it's not only that these, this sort of existential hope has been crushed, it's that they've lost their friend. There's a sense of grieving, a profound sadness. And these two disciples with all of the pieces and the fragments of the story that they have been telling themselves are now walking this walk of disappointment and disillusionment to Emmaus, walking away from everything they thought was going to happen, walking, not knowing what the future holds. And what does Jesus do? He comes near. He walks alongside them. Jesus walks with us even when we are walking away from him. Our doubts do not keep Jesus at arm's length. Our doubts do not keep Jesus at bay. Jesus comes to us right in the midst of them. He walks alongside, verse 17. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? Now, Jesus is really funny. And especially upon his resurrection, there's a slight inclination to mess with people. He's literally asking them about himself. And they know nothing. They're like, are you the only one who doesn't know? And Jesus is like, tell me more about that. What things do you know? And they replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is like, I've heard of him. Nice guy. Was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But listen to this, verse 21. But we had hoped. You can hear the ache in that sentence. We had hoped. How many times have you been in that place? We had hoped. We had thought this was the way it was going to go. And it's very clear that it's not going to go that way now. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes. And besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning. And when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Notice what Jesus does that is so powerful. In the midst of all of this doubt and disappointment and disillusionment and uncertainty, Jesus does something so profound. He asks a question about the thing that he knows more about than anyone else. Jesus asks a question, and then notice what else he does. He just listens. 
Jesus could have come in with all the force of the truth, and yet he doesn't do that. Emily Dickinson says that the truth must dazzle gradually, lest every man be blind. This is what Jesus is doing here. Again, think about the way that Jesus so often announced his resurrection to his disciples upon his his reanimation to life. He would come and he would sit down to meals with his friends. He didn't go to the heights of power in Rome. He didn't go to the place where it'd be obvious where everybody could see him. He didn't go to the top of the temple. No, Jesus would sit down to meals with his friends upon his resurrection. And it tells us that there's something so precious about faith. Why does God do things the way that he does? I don't always know, but there's something in the midst of it that he's trying to communicate to us, that there's something so, that God so treasures about faith. Jesus comes and he asks a question and he just listens to them. He listens to them unpack the story that they are telling. There's such kindness here. There's such patience here. God is not in a hurry. And even as they unpack, they say that there, there was women who went to the tomb and they told a, a story about a vision of angels, which is not quite the story that they told. But even as they're telling that story, Jesus waits. Because the rumor of the hope that these, these two had heard was just too good to be true. But then notice what Jesus does. After he walks alongside, after he comes near, after he asks the question, after he listens, Notice what he does. Verse 25. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe. All that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. Jesus holds a Bible study. And friends, this was a strong Bible study. You want to get the podcast of Jesus unpacking the scriptures. That, that, I'd be interested in that. He walks them through the scriptures and he reorients the story that they're telling. They were telling one story, a vision of a conquering king, a king who would conquer in the obvious ways of battle. And Jesus is telling a different story of a conquering king, but a king who doesn't conquer by killing his enemies, but by giving his life for his enemies on a cross. He tells a different story, a better story. God meets them with his very self, with his version of the story. This can be a really hard element of doubt is that we are often disappointed in God for not keeping a promise that he never made, for not doing what we wanted him to do. But, and friends, don't miss this. Again, this is so important. Even though we may be telling a diminished or a distorted version of the story, God doesn't stay away. And both those things are happening at once. We can be telling the wrong version of the story. And yet, Jesus comes to us. Jesus draws near. Verse 28, it says, As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked along as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. Because it is almost evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. As evening falls, it seems that this interaction is drawing to a close, but these two travelers invite Jesus to stay with them. Now, the culture, both in first century uh, ancient Near East and in our day today, is places a very high value on hospitality. So there's a couple things that could be going on here. 
It could be that these two travelers, as they're walking with Jesus, it would be culturally expected that they would ask him to come in for a meal. This was a part of their custom. And so it could be just in their despair and their disappointment, they're still just doing the next right thing. They're just doing what they're supposed to do. And I know for many of us, we've been in that place times where we're just, we're suffering, we're hurt. We've experienced loss and it's really hard just to do maybe, maybe what's right, maybe the next right thing. The second thing that could be going on here is they may just be so taken by this stranger. You know, it'll say later their hearts were burning within them while he opens the scriptures, while he walks along the road, that they're just like, we just, whatever this is, more of this. There's a story in John 6 that Jesus disappoints the largest crowd that had ever amassed around him. You know, if Jesus were trying to come as a king in the way of the world, this was the moment to capitalize upon. The crowds had assembled. Jesus had miraculously fed 5,000 people in the wilderness. And these were largely peasants forging a meager existence from the earth. And here's a king who can miraculously provide for multitudes of people. And they come and they're like, this is our king. This is our guy. Do the bread thing again, please. And Jesus in that moment says, if you want to follow me, eat my flesh and drink my blood, which is a weird thing to say. And they go away sad. They're like, we don't know what to do with that. And Jesus turns to his disciples, his closest followers, and he says, are you going to leave too? These are my closest. <laughs> Love you. <laughs> Good timing. <laughs> and in that moment, Peter says something so beautiful and so profound. He says, where else would we go? You alone have the words of life. It's possible that these two disciples in the story are expressing something of this sentiment. They're compelled by this mysterious stranger. They don't know who Jesus is. They don't know that yet. And they're even in the midst of their doubt and disappointment, clinging to the only place of wonder and hope. Have you ever been in this place? You're like, all of my circumstances, all that I'm experiencing tells me that there is nothing good for me that waits. And yet there's one glimmer of hope and it's possible that they just say, stay. What a powerful prayer, stay. Jesus himself, at the moment of his greatest doubt, would pray this in a way, requesting this of his friends. Stay with me in the garden of Gethsemane. Stay with me as I stare down the cross. Stay and pray with me. Sometimes that is the only prayer that we can utter. And I think it's so powerful that Luke illustrates as evening falls, as darkness is creeping in, they pray in their naivety, in their not knowing, stay with me. In seasons of, or lives of doubt, we can do worse than to simply pray this prayer. Verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, he blessed, and he broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, were our hearts not burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? And that same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11 and their companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed and he has appeared to Simon. And then they told them what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of bread. Jesus has this great way of being invited to meals 
to be invited as a guest. And then as soon as he sits down to the meal, he becomes the host. So it's like, oh, you thought you were inviting Jesus as your guest. He's like, actually, give me the bread. Takes it, he blesses it, he breaks it and he gives it. And it's in the, the breaking and the giving of the bread that they see fully. They see the truth breaks in like a brilliant light. Now, I know we hear the conclusion of the story and we think, well, of course. Like if, if Jesus were to sit down to a meal with me and to remove any shred of doubt that he was God risen and reigning, then I too would believe. But I don't think that's the point of the story. I think it's instructive that at the moment they realize it's the risen Jesus, what happens? He vanishes, right? The point is not the certainty on the behalf of the disciples. That's a byproduct. The point was that Jesus had been there the entire day long, walking with them, listening to them, unpacking their forlorn hopes, listening to their disillusionment, their brokenness, their sense that there is no future. Jesus was there the entire story. This is much like the story of Jacob wrestling with God. It's only at the end of the story that he says, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. Friends, faith is not about conclusions. To live by faith, to walk by faith and not by sight is to be convicted that God is always, always with you. Whether you are aware of it, whether we are aware of it or not. Faith is not about conclusions. It's not a settled matter of doctrines. Those things are important, but it's more than that. It's about trust. It's about surrender. It's about allowing God to come and be God with us. To have doubts, friends, is itself the first step to needing faith. And so if you have doubts about God's goodness, about his love for you, if you have doubts about what God is doing in the world, he comes to you draws near to you. He is with you. Okay, so I I don't always do this because I think sometimes being prescriptive at the end of a sermon sort of undermines the actual proclamation of Jesus as Lord. But I think with something like doubt, it's helpful to have some footholds to hold on to. And so these are just some. They may be helpful to you. If not, you'll go to lunch in about a while. Just kidding, not that long. All right, so what do you do when your life is just feels like it's racked with doubt? Again, we'll see doubt is not a problem to be solved. But what do we do? First, I think you seek simple obedience to God. Oftentimes we get stuck in a spiral, especially in our world that is just absolutely inundated with information, right? I, I like to like accumulate knowledge. That's where I go when I don't know what to do next. I'm just like, all right, let's read. There's another book. Somebody's written on this, right? We try to figure out God, but oftentimes God's just saying, hey, you know what I've asked you to do? Just go do that. You know, Micah 6.8 breaks it down, right? What does the Lord require of you? Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. That's simplistic. It's simple without being simplistic, right? That's actually really hard to do. But that's what God has called us to, right? To do the simple acts of obedience that declare that we believe in Jesus. We believe that he is who he says he is. Next, um, read, read and interact with the good stuff. Um, listen, friends, there are a lot of theological disasters on YouTube and TikTok and Facebook and in actual books. So there's a lot of really good stuff too. And you should be suspicious of 
theological constructs that either tell you that your political leanings are all right, that they all do, yes, you're doing great, uh, that your inclinations about God all completely right, you just happen to be the one person in the history of the world who just had this natural intuition that this is what God was like. And every book you read is just telling you that that's what God's like. You should be suspicious of any theologies that say everything that goes on in Western culture is awesome and amazing and should just be celebrated. You should be suspicious of those things. But without an ethic of suspicion, there's so much beautiful, amazing stuff out there. Hebrews 11 talks about faith, that we are part of this cloud of witnesses, that people have been living this life for 2,000 years and they have passed down a treasure trove of reflecting on life with God. And so you want to find that stuff. And you want to interact with it. And I left that very intentionally vague because there's so many things that I've interacted with and that I don't know about. There's a lot of good stuff out there. Find the good stuff. Next, find companions. You know, I love how this story takes place in community. Two disciples walking, Jesus joining them. We need companions for the journey. And friends, if you are feeling like you're just overwhelmed with doubt, if you're kind of in a season of that, you need to find people that can hold them for you. And here's a very good test for rather if they can hold it for you. Do they act like Jesus? What does Jesus do in response to doubt? Well, he draws near, he walks alongside, he asks questions, he listens, tells a better story. If somebody starts with trying to answer very simply to your very complex and aching need, then perhaps they are not the person that can hold these doubts. And again, that's not in any besmirchment on their character. It's not saying, oh, they're, they're a bad person. It just may mean that they're not agile in this space, right? But you need to find companions. This doubt becomes a, a, a looming sense of despair when we feel like we're alone. And the truth of the matter is you're not alone. But God, not only does he come to us in the full force of himself, his presence, but he also puts people around us as the church. We are called to be the people who come alongside. And Ecclesia, the other side of this is, can we be the kind of followers of Jesus who can act like Jesus when people are expressing doubt and not feel the need to short circuit the process, not feel the need to be impatient, but rather to walk with people in the midst of their doubts. We need to find and be companions. Embrace mystery, friends. Doubt is not a mystery or a problem to be solved, but a doorway to intimacy with God. Mystery does not mean that there's no truth. It's not just this existential whatever. But mystery does mean that often when we are approaching something truer, something better, that there'll be much more that we're uncertain about. And yet, in the midst of that, there'll be much more that we are certain about. G.K. Chesterton says that the point of an open mind is like that of an open mouth, that it would settle upon something solid. Mystery is the acknowledgement that we are not what we are, or not what we will be, but as we gaze upon Christ, we are being transformed, that we are held in the arms of love, that no matter our feelings don't define us, that God is doing something beyond what we experience in every single moment. And the last thing is hold fast. And again, this is the most kind of just a sort of that prayer of grit, that prayer of stay. You know, almost resol resolve yourself to have the spirit that Peter has. Where else would I go? <laughs> if you stay in that place, you will find the other side. You'll find resurrection and, and so many beautiful things that God has for you. But sometimes we just... You know, again, we need companions, we need people, but it feels so much easier to give up. 
Hold fast, stay in that place. Pray that prayer to God. Say, God, keep me in in the place of your love and your heart for me. God, keep me around people that will hold my doubts, that will hold my questions. Whatever you can do to stand, the Spirit of God will enable you to stand. The poet Rainier Marie Rilke says, you are so young, so much before all beginning, and I want to ask you, dear sir, as best I can to have patience about everything that is still unresolved in your heart. Try to love the questions themselves. Like locked rooms, like books written in a truly foreign language, don't look for answers now. They cannot be given to you yet because you cannot yet live them. And what matters is to live everything For now, live the questions. If you do, then maybe gradually, without your realizing it, some far off day, you will live into your answer. And there's certainly some romanticism and existentialism wrapped up in this, but I think this bears witness to the way Jesus is so patiently calling us to himself. If if faith were about a destination, a place that you were wanting, he was wanting you to get to, then God would, we'd have some questions about the way God has gone about doing that. But if faith were about God being with you, no matter what, we don't always know what, how God is accomplishing his purposes, why things happen, what will come next. But what we do know without an ounce of doubt is that come what may, come doubt or death, flood or fire, dark night of the soul or the light of God's face, the valley of the shadow of death or the sunlit day and the warmest, greenest pasture, God will not fail to be God with us. He will come to us in our doubts, that he will come to us in our despair with his very self and will tell us a better, truer, more beautiful story. God is big enough to hold your doubts. Faith is big enough to sit alongside your doubts and to lead you to the beautiful God that loves you beyond anything you can ask or imagine. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come forward. Each week, as we come to the table, We come to the place that in our story, the eyes were opened. People experience this sense like God is exactly who he says he is. He is risen and reigning. And today as we come to this table, I just simply want to pray that the Holy Spirit would meet each of us. Again, I I talked about this, that not all doubts are the same. And thus, not all of the responses to doubt are the same. We're, we're, as a room full of people, are holding all sorts of different doubts in front of God. Your doubts could have all different shapes, all different uh, experiences, all different scars, stories to tell. And I'm just going to pray in the faith that I can express as your pastor that God would meet you here. That God would give you a glimpse, as he does these two disciples, of his very face that in the blessing and the breaking and the giving of bread, that your eyes would be opened. Whether it is you need to see the love that God has for you, the, the loving gaze with which he looks upon you, the loving care with which he holds you, or whether you need to see that maybe some things that have been set up for you, whether by churches or whether by other people as, as different poles, as two things that can't be held together are in fact not that far apart. And so wherever you're coming from today, Wherever your doubts bring you, would you just bring them over to God and say, Lord, stay with me. Stay with me in this breaking of bread. Stay here in this place. I need to see who you are. I need to see your face. And I'm believing that God is doing a work of healing in our midst. 
for many of us is we're sort of unpacking our experience in church or we're unpacking our experiences in life. And there's so many reasons that we doubt. And God is not saying, oh, why are you doing that? He's saying, I'm, I'm here, drawing near in this place. And each week we, we have this beautiful thing that happens. Because the, the flow of the service moves from the spoken word to something that you can taste, something that you can hold. So in a way, the word is trying to become flesh in our midst, trying to confirm that this is Christ's body broken for you. And as you draw the cup to your lips to tell you and to confirm in your heart beyond any shadow of a doubt that this is Christ's blood poured out for your sins, that as often as we de- as often as we drink, even in the midst of profound doubt that Jesus himself is drawing near, he's leading us along the road and he's leading us to see him. So we come to this table. I'm gonna invite our communion service to come forward. I'm gonna pray. And over the next few moments, Mal will be in the middle aisle to tell you when to come up. And again, we, we do this slowly, this part, because that's what Jesus does. There's patience in the giving and the breaking and the blessing. And so we take this part very, very slowly and, and seriously. So we pray, come Holy Spirit. Lord, would you speak the words that I cannot say? Would you meet the doubts that I cannot meet? God, not that we would walk out of here with all the answers, but that we would walk out of here knowing that we are profoundly, irreversibly loved by you. God, I want to speak a special word to those of us who are, who, whose faith has just been defined by, by unpacking, by deconstructing, God. Would you show them that, that that is a natural part of the process? of growing in maturity of you, God, that there are healthy ways to walk in that. Lord, I want to speak to those who had ex- have had experiences, Lord, very near to their heart that just for them, like their whole experience with you has been doubt and despair. God, would you show us your presence here this morning? Would you show us your kindness, God, your peace that surpasses all understanding, Lord Jesus? Lord, we welcome your presence here. We meet you at this table. Forgive us, God. Meet us. We pray all these things in your name. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Now we'll show you when to come forward, our friends.